when Messiaen began his uh, interest in birds in the 1950s, there was actually quite a lot known about birds. We knew quite a lot about how to identify them, quite a lot about their biology. Nothing like we know today. But I don't think he would have struggled with identification. But what was it like when ornithology first started? And how do we know what we know about birds? My interest in the history of ornithology began um, 10 or 15 years ago when a colleague was doing some local research and had found the names of some birds that had been shot and uh, she didn't, she wasn't able to identify them. And she asked me if I could help her. The first one of these was a dun diver. Anybody know what that is? Second one was a chatterer. Lots of people think that's a magpie, but it isn't. And the one that really stumped me for quite a long time was this scallop-toed sandpiper. Although I didn't know what these birds were, I did know where to go and look. And that was in a book called The Ornithology of Francis Willoughby. Francis Willoughby, together with his Cambridge tutor, John Ray, formed the very beginning of scientific ornithology in the mid-1600s. Now today, if I asked to identify this, even those members of the Sheffield Bird Study Group in the audience could probably manage this one. They might even manage this one, maybe this one. When I showed somebody uh, who was involved in the production of this uh, this evening, they struggled with this one. This one's a period. Now imagine what it must have been like for John Ray and Francis Willoughby um, in the 1600s, encountering birds as they did on the continent that they'd never seen before. Who knows, for example, what this is? I bet nobody does. Or this one. Or this one. Okay, it's a parrot, but what kind of parrot? Ornithology was in a bit of a state, natural history was in a bit of a state in the mid-1600s, and John Ray and Francis Willoughby decided that in 1662 they'd undertake a complete overhaul of the study of natural history. They divided it up between themselves, Ray was principally a botanist, and Francis Willoughby uh, fancied looking out for the animals. So what was the state of ornithology that they were trying to sort out and improve upon? Well, there were three massive encyclopedias. Conrad Gessner had produced one in 1555, and in the same year, Pierre Bellon had done another. Gessner didn't rate Bellon because Bellon wasn't a proper academic. That kind of snobbishness still persists today. And uh, the other one was uh, Aldrovandi, who a few years later decided he was going to try and outdo both of them. When I say outdo, this was the era of what's called the era of copious knowledge. When to demonstrate how clever you were and how academic you were, he produced these vast tomes with everything you could possibly imagine that was related to birds and animals. So the etymology, uh, links with its name, the use of that animal in medicine, and probably most of all in terms of emblematics. You can tell that the person that carved this misery cord wasn't much of an ornithologist because this, this is a pelican piercing its breast. And the story is that it pierced its breast to feed its young uh, on its blood in an act of self-sacrifice. And a lot of these emblematic uh, images uh, which appear in those uh, three encyclopedias uh, had a kind of moralizing message. It was all about self-improvement. Here's another one. This is a peacock, the most spectacular of all birds. But, um, with the ugliest feet of any bird, and the message underneath says, Peacock, know thyself, and it's looking at its feet. <laughs> Ornithology in the, in the mid-1600s, when Ray and Willoughby were uh, 
busy trying to get things sorted out was completely different um, from today. For example, they needed specimens, they needed to undertake descriptions because often those, their predecessors, Gessner and Aldebrandes, made mistakes. Um, often the male and female of a species were considered to be separate species. They also looked at the inside and the outside of birds, so they did lots of dissections. And of course, the reason they had to have specimens was that there were no optics that they could use, there were no binoculars. Now, today's ornithologists are often scathing about early ornithologists having to shoot things, but that's just part of the progress of, of science. There were no binoculars, the only way you could produce an accurate description was to have a specimen in your hand. Uh, so any, if there are any ornithologists or bird watchers in the audience, get over it. You know, this is what was important in history. So getting a specimen was, was crucial. And one of the uh, specimens that Willoughby uh, acquired was a bittern. And uh, a rather extraordinary bird. He went to Lincolnshire, and they also got some specimens on the continent. And when he was an undergraduate in Cambridge at Trinity, he dissected a bittern in his rooms. He'd probably be chucked out or sent down for doing that these days. But I wanted to relive this bittern dissection experience. So I wrote to every nature reserve in Britain saying, do you happen to have a dead bittern in your freezer, like they do? And uh, they all wrote back and said, no. Um, so I wrote to uh, some of the other reserves where I knew bitterns uh, bred and said, if you ever find a dead bittern, I'd be quite interested. And to my absolute amazement, two weeks later, somebody telephoned me and said, oh, we just found a dead bittern. Do you want to come over and dissect it? We did. And I was able to compare my dissection with Willoughby's dissection. And the bittern has lots of fabulously uh, interesting features, like this patch of white feathers here. All right, those are what are called the powder down feathers. Those are special feathers that have evolved to disintegrate as they erupt from their sheaths to produce a talcum-like substance that the bittern uses uh, to deal with the fish slime feeds on eels predominantly. This wonderful claw here, you can probably see, has a serrated edge like a comb, and it also uses that to clean um, the fish slime of its um, plumage. And uh, people in the 1650s liked this, and they had it mounted in silver and used it as a toothpick. And then finally, uh, was the bittern's gut. Phenomenally long gut. Ruby says it's, it's two meters long. And when I dissected it, I literally had to stand up on a table, and sure enough, it was two meters long. They were also interested in ascribing names, so the scientific name, Petaurus stellaris, relates to the fact that the bittern's call, which I'm sure Messian uses somewhere in his music, is like the call from a bull, and stellaris refers to this beautiful star-like pattern on the plumage. Getting specimens wasn't always easy, and they relied a lot on colleagues to send them specimens. And if you look at Willoughby's book, The Encyclopedia of Ornithology, and there are lots of people mentioned, and I was thrilled to find that uh, one of the people that he mentions is Francis Jessup, who lived in Broom Hall. Sadly, the hall that Jessup lived in burnt down. Uh, when I was looking up this, uh, apparently the house was torched by an angry mob. Uh, must have been something to do with the university anyway. Um, Jessup uh, provided lots of specimens. He, he collected dippers from the Riven Valley and um, Moor game from the moors near Heather's Edge, Hathersage, and, and gold crests from Hilo Hall. And uh, his wife had come from this hall, which is just uh, near, between Bakewell and uh, Grindleford. And uh, he uh, acquired gold crests and sent them to Willoughby. 
in order to dissect and measure. Now, Willoughby's forte was something called distinguishing marks. And these are the same as those marks you would see in a field guide today, where there are little pointers at those features that you should use to identify uh, particular species and distinguish them from others. But of course, Willoughby's were all based on birds in the hand. Just to give an example, he identified uh, what is called a tomial tooth, that little notch um, that you can see at the end of the redback shrike's beak and a rather larger notch on this peregrine's beak. And that little notch is actually used for breaking the cervical vertebrae in the uh, vertebrate prey that these two species feed on. And because they both, these two uh, birds, have a tomial tooth, Francis Willoughby categorised them together, classified them together. But of course, they, we know now that they're totally unrelated. Redback shrike is a pasteurine and the peregrine is not. In amongst all their attempts to provide a classification of birds, they also made some other um, incidental and, to me, extremely interesting uh, observations. So, of the quail, they, they wrote this lovely phrase, the quail, the cock, has great testicles for the bigness of its body, whence we may infer that it is a salacious bird. And indeed it is, because the quail has enormous testicles, which on the basis of what I told you earlier, tell you that it is indeed a salacious bird, and there is a lot of what we call um, promiscuity and sperm competition in quail. But of course, Willoughby and Ray had no context for understanding the significance of those very large testes, but they noted all this stuff down. Sadly, poor old Willoughby died at the age of 36, and Ray was left with the job of turning his colleagues' notes into a published book. And uh, I think this was pretty hard work for him. And uh, I'm currently writing a biography of Francis Willoughby uh, because he was rather eclipsed by John Ray. So although John Ray uh, wrote this book on the basis of Willoughby's uh, notes, everybody thinks that it was all Ray's work. And it obviously, uh, as we now know, wasn't. So what did he achieve? Basically and fundamentally, he produced a method for studying birds. This was the beginning of scientific bird study. He also made some discoveries. He was the first person, for example, to distinguish the honey buzzard from the common buzzard. And I'm actually in the process of trying to get the honey buzzard's name changed to Willoughby's buzzard. Honey buzzard is, is useless. It must be the worst name. It definitely doesn't eat honey, and it's, prob it's probably not even a buzzard. And, and it's, also, it's also called the, the, the European honey buzzard, but it doesn't just occur in Europe. Willoughby also produced the first classification birds, and he was also um, the person who first used song um, in classification. So just to um, round up this little talk, um, let me tell you what those species are. Um, David Wood from the Sheffield Bird Study Group, who I know is in the audience, has actually offered a £100 prize for anybody that can identify the Dundiver, the Chatterer, and Scallop-toed Sandpiper. So shout out if you think you know the answer. You're pretty safe, David. Okay. But I'm going to tell you, so probably you can give me the 100 quid. Anyway, the Dundiver is the Meganza, the Chatterer is the Waxwing. And Scott Toad Sunfire. Now, from our river scene and um, with the willows and poplar trees and Chetty's warblers, we move inland now to cast our eyes back um, and see about uh, Messian's observations high up in the mountains. 